Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Hey, everybody, welcome to Big Blend Radio's military show, where every first Monday we talk military history with Mike Guardia, who is an award-winning author, a military historian, and a U.S. Army veteran. And along with many other books, Mike is the author of the widely acclaimed biography, How More a Soldier Once and Always, and it chronicles the life of Lieutenant General Harold G. Moore, whose battlefield leadership was popularized by the film we are soldier. We were soldiers, starring Mel Gibson. And Mike was recently named Author of the Year by the Military Writers Society of America. And we're so happy he's been on our show for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the first time we get to announce it. We're going to have every first Monday of the month. We're going to have him on the show. And uh, today he is joining us with his latest book. It's called Danger Forward: The Forgotten Wars of General Paul F. Gorman. You can get it on Amazon now, or go to his website. You'll see all the other books. I can't keep up with how many. Go to MikeGuardia.com. So welcome back, Military Mike. How are you? Hey, Lisa. Hey, Nancy. I'm doing great. Always great to be on the show. Happy Thanksgiving and day and a happy Black Friday to you both. And holidays. Yes, because this is during December 6th. I know today's Black Friday, but well, apparently we all don't care about how much our TV sets are. No, <laughs> we're all here now. But but yeah, the holidays are coming up. Excited about your first uh, Monday show coming up and uh, Paul Gorman uh, to talk about him. Mm. I know you've been talking about this book coming out for a while now. And Correct. Nancy grabbed hold of it and she keeps mm-hmm. running in. It's one of those books. Every few, you know, chapters. Did you know he did this? Did you? He's a badass. <laughs> and sorry, but I, I don't know how his family's going to feel me saying that. But that's what I'm Nancy sure they'd says. agree. He's yeah. a warrior. He was like a real like warrior, like this smart is, guy. Yeah, really um, smart. How did you first find out about Paul Gorman? So let's see. Uh, the first I actually heard of Paul Gorman, I want to say it was around 2014 or 2015. I actually came across his name while I w- while I was doing research for Crusader. That was the book on Don Starry. And I came across Gorman's name as one of the intellectual giants who was helping to rebuild the army. In the in the wake of the post Vietnam malaise, and uh, you know I uh, I knew that he did uh, I knew that he did some very important things with the U.S. Army's uh, training and doctrine command in uh, trying to revitalize the Army's training methods and trying to get a solid curriculum that that uh, that that what was performance based in in instead of just metrics based, and uh, I knew about him only in the terms of what he accomplished within that uh, small like four year window. Uh, when he was helping to rebuild the army, but I really didn't dig in deep into what he did beyond that. I just figured that he was another, you know, strong intellectual giant who um, was, uh, you know, was helping to rebuild the army throughout the 70s. And uh, then fast forward to the fall of 2018, when I was giving a uh, presentation at at the Colin Powell Leadership Academy, and the professor of military science there, he said, Mike, I read your book on Crusader, but let me ask you something. Uh, have you ever heard of a guy named Paul Gorman? And I said, yeah, you know, I came across his name while I was writing that book on Don Starry. And he said, well, Mike, you know, he, he's still with us. And, you know, he did so much more beyond what people typically think he did at Tradoc. You know, here, let me tell you about some of the things that he's done. He said, well, you know, Paul Gorman, for one, he's a 1950 West Point graduate. You know, he uh, had his first taste of combat in the hilltop, in, in the hilltop battles of Korea. And Mike, did you also know that he was the commander uh, of American forces at the Battle of Bong Trang? That was the uh, that was that 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 was the three-day firefight uh, between uh, the uh, between the U.S. Army and uh, those VC battalions that uh, you know that made headlines. He was awarded the Distinguished uh, Service Cross for that. And Mike, did you also know that he was on the Paris Peace Delegation and he was the principal mm-hmm. architect of the Pentagon Papers? That's and crazy. I said, and Dude. I said, God, I, 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 I had no idea he did any of that. What? Mm. 
Yeah. And so he, he then, you know, he, he also went on to uh, he also went on to tell me more about more about what he had accomplished. And he said, you know, not only that, he stayed in the military, of course, after, uh, you know, after um, trying to rebuild the army. And he ended up commanding a uh, ended up commanding an infantry division forward stationed in West Germany. But not only that, he was also the commander of the U.S. Southern Command, Southcom, uh, through, through, um, mm-hmm. during the early part of the 1980s. And he was commanding Southcom while we uh, while we had troops in El Salvador, while we were a- actively supporting the Contras in Nicaragua, and also when uh, uh, American forces invaded Grenada. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, you know, I mean, he's done so much throughout his lifetime. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, from the uh, you know from the hilltops of North Korea to the halls of the Pentagon to the jungles of Nicaragua, how come I've never heard of this guy outside of the hmm. few years that he spent with Tradoc. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, it was mind blowing. I was telling myself, I, I have to meet this guy. I, I have to get a story down on paper. And uh, yeah, the, that, uh, that is the roundabout way of how I ultimately, uh, wow. ultimately came to the project. Did you meet him? Uh, we have never met in person, but we have done a lot of Zoom interviews. Uh, wow. you know, unfortunately, nice. we started, uh, you know, we started the interview process uh, just a few months before the pandemic hit, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, given uh, given the fact that uh, that uh, he, he's currently residing in, in, in a senior center, you know, oh, the, yeah. uh, the the uh, the 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 uh, travel restrictions and the visitation restrictions being what they are, uh, we never had a chance to meet in person. But uh, even those Zoom meetings that we have, I mean, just uh, just an incredible energy that he gives off. And even today, at the age of ninety four, I mean, he's wow. still just going strong, still sharp as any 30 year old I've met. I mean, seriously. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, he's an amazing person. I mean, I, if you read the book, you climb into this guy's mind and how organized he mm-hmm. can make things. Like even there's one right. part in the book you're talking about um, how the ammunitions were stored mm-hmm. and it would take 12 hours for the guys to go in and get the ammunition they needed. And he's like, well, that's stupid. Now I'm going to fix that. And, right. you know, it gets it down to like two to four hours to pull out the ammunition just by thinking how things should be properly stored so that when you need something fast, you can get it. So he, co- he kind of goes back to the basics of every single problem and fixes the problem to ensure the outcome that he wants. I mean, and, and not very many people really have the wherewithal to think it through and then make it happen. That's right. what impressed me is like, he'd see a problem, think it through. Oh, this is how it should be done. And he would make it happen. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is one of the most gifted problem solvers that I've ever spoken to. You know, I mean, yeah. just to hear his stories of how he would deconstruct this and, you know, I really think that shines a light on the fact that this isn't really something that can be taught. I don't think problem solving and, mm. uh, and that type of critical thinking is something that you can learn in a classroom. I think it's something, mm. that, uh, something that experience either teaches you or it's something that you just have an innate talent for. And mm. then your experiences build upon that and they expand that talent over time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just incredible how he could deconstruct these problems and not only that, how he could how he could also motivate those people, not only those who served under him, but inspire those who were working with him at the time. That mm-hmm. I really think is the is the sign of a true leader to be able to problem solve on that level while simultaneously inspiring those not only beneath you, but those who are who are, who are working in a lateral sense alongside mm-hmm. you. Yeah, because I can imagine there's always going to be the few that have a jealousy problem with sure. it you know, who want to one up the other person so they look better, yeah. all those kind of things that happen when oh, yeah. you have a bunch of humans together. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No matter whether it's in the service or not in the service, when you put a mm-hmm. lot of people together, competition comes out and yeah. and there's healthy competition and not so healthy. But mm-hmm. he just like seemed like a person who I'm going to deal with the problem and I'm not going to stop till it's the way it should be. And just, it's amazing what he's done. Yeah. I think it's interesting with what you've been writing over the years. I know you get into 
um, here's the F-14 or the F-15 and the, you know, the armor and, and, you know, the artillery and all of that. And, um, but you always, no matter what, bring the human connection into those who serve in the military. And I think, you know, as readers and what you see on the news, we always forget the human. This is human. They're human beings, you know, and, and I feel like sometimes we have that disconnect and, you are always bringing that to the forefront and making it very accessible for those who are in the military and understand all the lingo and and history buffs who know the different wars and then people like us who go, damn, I didn't know that happened. <laughs> and, and make it accessible that we understand more than the headlines that the news give us and their opinions. There's this getting to know what people went through serving like in, in Vietnam, Korea, mm-hmm. like you're saying. Um, it did... Did writing, you know, all that you've got three books on Hal Moore now, mm-hmm. you know, and all the other stories, you know, uh, bringing all these generals and lieutenants to life in your books and then writing about Paul Gorman now, did it help that you've done all that backlog of writing and understanding those wars? I know you've got degrees and master degrees and teaching and history and all of that, but writing this book, did it help having all of that background to be able to do the breadth of work that Paul Gorman has done? Oh, it sure did. It absolutely did. You know, I found that the more stories I write and the more human elements that I incorporate within them, you know, I, uh, I really think it helps me in the sense that I start to see trends in how these leaders act and I Mm. see trends in how they approach the same problem. And it really helps me. uh, I I think it helps me tell a story in a more convincing sense and in a more intimate setting that will resonate with the reader to say, okay, well, now I have this person that I'm presenting and I'm presenting his story against the backdrop of similar stories that I've told. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, I can tell you that his experiences here um, are, are within the context of what so many other people like him were feeling at that exact same time. And, you know, how the, how the outcome, how, how the outcome of that particular conflict or the outcome of that particular situation was kind of up in the air and it was uncertain. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. how those, how those, uh, how those universal qualities that each of these leaders and heroes and individuals have see them through to victory. And, you know, the victory that Paul Gorman has over here might look a little bit different than what was achieved by Donald Blackburn or Hal Moore over here, but you see those parallels. And Mm. I think that's, uh, I think that what, I think the downstream effect, the downstream effect of that is you've made a story that uh, really, really grabs hold of the reader and says, well, hey, this is a uh, person who at the end of the day, isn't all that dissimilar for me and a person who, you know, could very easily be my neighbor for all I know. And inspiring to mm-hmm. not let a, a bad day mm-hmm. get in your way. You, right. you don't, you're not allowed to have that happen. You know, like we were talking about that with pilots the other day, uh-huh. the, the last show, it's like, you're not allowed to have a bad day. You have to go and you have to fix whatever's going on at you and make decisions and, think and uh, realize it's lives at whatever decision you make, right? Um, Nancy, you were talking about in one of the many times you kept running in going, dude, <laughs> you gotta check this out. Uh, you said that, you know, going from, you know, growing up in, in the Vietnam era, um, you really mm. got a better idea of what happened in the Vietnam War in oh, Korea sure. than um, what you lived, you know, as a civilian seeing what was going on through the news. And, and so your understanding changed. Yeah, I, the the whole thing, you know, in the, the mid-60s, um, coming out of high school and everybody's, you know, having protests, some for the Vietnamese War, some against it, mostly against it, and not having any real way of understanding what was actually going on. You couldn't trust the newspapers because... Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, 
You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. They made no sense. Your teachers at school didn't want to talk about it. Your parents really didn't know anyway. At least mine didn't. They were like, ooh. So it was really hard because you saw your classmates going off to a war (laughs) that nobody really seemed to be able to explain. Mm -hmm. You know, and so reading your book, I was like, oh, so that's what it was. Oh, so that was, you know, because for years I just thought, okay, well, it was just we had dumb leaders at the time that that's how i summed it up we had dumb Uh-oh. politicians who <laughs> okay here we go decisions and that's it i don't disagree you know, <laughs> yeah you know so that's how i felt about it and then i read your book, I'm like oh wow look at that oh i didn't know that you know and it's not like i spent a lot of time researching it you know because i had my young life to get on with and i was busy and i just was like glad when it was over that's pretty much how everyone was yeah just glad that it was over and please Mm -hmm. don't do it again because you had so many people we never should have gone there never should have been there and I don't think anybody who was talking at the time that was really very vocal actually had any idea what they were talking about Mm -hmm. they were just loud about it but they really nobody seemed to know Kind of like today. Yeah, with (laughs) Afghanistan. I know we're going to talk a lot about Afghanistan um, on their next segment coming out January 3rd, everybody. Um, But it it does connect. Is there a parallel? And we see a lot of people talk about that. There's a parallel between what happened in Vietnam and Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. Wow. So getting into what was going on in the army and he deciding it has to be rebuilt. Tell us about that, where he decided this needs to change. And then. Are, don't other people say no? You're not allowed to change. Don't you know, recreate the wheel. Doesn't that happen? <laughs> right. Well, I think it was a bit easier to get the ball rolling on change because I think uh, to anyone who was paying at all attention to what was happening not only in the army but what was happening, um, you know, throughout uh, throughout American society as a whole, and just how savagely public opinion had turned against the war. I think Mm -hmm. everyone who was paying any bit of attention could earnestly look at the situation and say, gosh, there really needs to be some changes made here. You know, when we have at least, you know, this amount of the army who is coming in without a high school diploma, when we have soldiers who are deserting, when we have soldiers who are attacking Mm -hmm. and even killing their leaders, when we have, you know, upwards of, you know, 30 to 40 percent of soldiers in any given unit who are admitting to drug use and, you know, who are showing up at work higher than a kite and, mm. you know, then there's no system yeah, in place. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and when, when there's no system in place to get rid of these bad apples and not only that, you have an American public that's hostile towards us. Well, gosh, you know, we really need mm. to, uh, we really need to fix the situation here. We need to increase our combat readiness and we need to have these control mechanisms in place, not only to keep bad apples out, but also, do some realistic training that is going to make us combat effective in the field. So I think it was easier for him to get the ball rolling on that. And when he finally got to the forefront of doing it, you know, he had a very uh, big, uh, he had a very big support mechanism behind him saying, okay, well, Paul, here's what we need to accomplish. So I'm giving you a very wide berth in which to operate. So find out what the problems are give me ideas on how to fix them and no ideas off limits. I can be a sounding board. Let's find out what works. Let's find out what doesn't work so we can make this change happen. And I think going into it, they all knew that the change wasn't going to happen overnight. They said, okay, it took Mm -hmm. us, you know, it took us 10 plus years of fighting in Vietnam, you know, 10 plus years of social and a lot of political unrest to get to this point. It's probably going to take us about that long, maybe even longer to, to fix the problem, but let's at least get some ideas down on paper. So one of the first things he did was he said, okay, well, I need to look at how soldiers are training. If I'm going into each one of these training centers and 80% of the training is happening inside of a classroom, well, that's probably not the best way to do business. What I need to do is I need to get soldiers in the field. 
I need to get them training under realistic conditions, under realistic scenarios that are going to replicate not only what they'll see in combat, but also replicate what the future threats might be. Because one of the things that Gorman commented on, he said, you know, the army is very good at training to win the last war that it fought. It has mm-hmm. a it has a bit of trouble projecting what the anticipated threats are going to be. You know, he said that uh, you know, he also said that when he was a staff officer in I, I think it was the 1950s, could have been the early 60s. But he said a lot of the uh, training that I sat in on was geared towards, you know, trying to was geared towards trying to win some of the uh, some of the battles that we had seen on the plains of Europe in World War Two. And, uh, you know, what, what, what and also what the Marines had seen in the amphibious operations in the Pacific. And he said, you know, that's not dissimilar to what other generations were focused on. You know, during the 1920s, all of the Army staff schools were focused on how to defeat the Germans in trench warfare when we were probably never going to see that type of combat ever again. So we said, OK, what I need to do is I need to say, all right, I need to get these guys out of the classroom. I need to get them focused on on a a basic standard level of competency that will work across different operational environments. And we need to incorporate something in the curriculum that can be adapted to any future threat that we meet. And what might those future threats be? What might they look like? Wow. See, that's smart. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's like if you always go on, you have to progress, not go back. You have to still Mm -hmm. take lessons from before, right? But learn to get into that. And Nancy was talking about that when she was Mm -hmm. reading the book about, you know, do we know, did we know how to fight in the swamps of, you know, Vietnam and Korea? Mm -hmm. And then that goes back to, well, didn't we learn some things? I shouldn't say we, because I wasn't there, but didn't our military learn like doing things like in the Louisiana maneuvers? Wasn't that part of Mm -hmm. learning? I mean, wasn't that World War II? Am I getting messed up that? No, I mean, that uh, was World War II, the Louisiana maneuvers. Yeah, because yeah. they had they went through swamps, and mm-hmm. you don't want to be in the swamp in Louisiana. <laughs> I've been there. I, I love it, but <laughs> you, you're going to get your leg bitten off <laughs> by a gator. <laughs> but, but, you know, you do need to learn all those things, and they do. Right. I mean, to me, it's interesting. We have all those things, but it seems like for Vietnam, we were not prepared as well compared to World War II, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, well, it. Uh, I, I'd say that uh, I'd say that the professionalism of our soldiers going into it uh, was head and shoulders above what we started with in World War II. Uh, okay. It's just at the strategic level, uh, they really couldn't clearly communicate what our objectives were, and not only that, uh, the military, in a very real, in a very real sense, was being hamstrung by mm-hmm. uh, by a lot of rules of engagement that discouraged initiative instead of promoting it, you know, to uh, say nothing of the fact that uh, we were engaging in a high, in a uh, full scale, high intensity conflict that was expected to be fought on the cheap. There was going to be no uh, widespread mobilization of the national guard or the army reserve. And not only that, you were, um, you were pursuing a lot of personnel policies that were undermining unit cohesion. You know, whereas in World War II, you would send a unit overseas and that unit more or less would stay intact throughout the entirety of the war, you know, minus maybe a few replacements that were brought in here and there to replace you know, some of the soldiers who were tragically killed. But, you know, you had a uh, you had a different approach in Vietnam where you not only had a big swath of the population that could apply for and get some draft deferments, but you had these soldiers going in and out of theater on a one year rotational basis and by the time they even survived to the one year mark, if they did survive that long, you know, they would take all the knowledge and know how and, uh, you know, every bit of useful information of what the enemy was doing and how to survive. They would take it with them back to the civilian world and they would say, OK, well, you know, the next guy who takes my place will have to figure it out. You know, there was no mechanism to keep a lot of the good experienced soldiers in there longer so they could teach the incoming people how to do it better than they could. Oh, wow. So he walks in, mm-hmm. Paul Gorman walks in and goes, we're changing this. We're going to, we're going to mm-hmm. fix it and take some initiative. Nancy said that he snuck over. Where is it? He went to Germany, Nancy. Where did he, he went to another place that he was supposed to be at one point. He, um, he just said his, his papers were in the mail because he decided he wanted to go. Oh, to yeah. He went to some, he went to San Francisco and because he oh. was going to go. Yeah. He went to San Francisco yeah. to join a, a, a troop that he wanted to join. He just, no, I'm going by. 
and just said his papers <laughs> were in the mail there what was that about showed up <laughs> yeah yeah all right like so yeah so if <laughs> but we, we uh, like stories like that i mean come on yeah. it's like you have to that's bullshit like to it is you know it is so yeah if we wind the clocks back to 1952 um he he was fresh out of the infantry officer basic course and uh, he really wanted to go to Korea, but it turns out that every graduating lieutenant in his class had been put on, on bulk orders to Germany. And Germany is about as far away as you can get from Korea before you start coming back. Mm. And, and he said, OK, well, the war is in Korea. That's where I want to be. I don't really want to go to Germany because there's nothing happening in Germany. I don't want to do you know, I don't want to do, uh, you know, these these uh, these guard tours along the Iron Curtain or what have you. I really want to go where the action is. So what he decided to do is he said, OK, I'm going to clandestine. I'm going to very clandestinely disobey that order. I'm going to put myself on a train to San Francisco to Camp Stoneman which mm. is the main hub for replacements going in and out of Korea. And I'm going to go up to the camp personnel officer and I'm going to say, hi, my name is Paul Gorman. Um, I uh, should be on orders to Korea. And then the personnel officer looks at his little clipboard and says, huh, Gorman, Gorman, I don't see that name on here. Um, uh, are you sure you have orders to go to Korea? I don't see your name anywhere on my list. And he said, well, okay, uh, let me call the G1 at the Pentagon. You know, let me call like the actual chief of the personnel division at the Pentagon. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get this all sorted out. So, you know, Gorman goes to a payphone or whatever it is, you know, gets on the horn with, uh, with uh, you know, with the personnel office at the Pentagon and says, hi, my name is Paul Gorman. I'm here at Camp Stoneman right now. That's where I'm calling you from. Um, I'm supposed to be on orders to Korea, but the guy here at Camp Stoneman does not have my orders to go to Korea. Can you please send him some orders? And, uh, you know, the person on the other end, uh, you know, he's probably thinking to himself, gosh, I don't know what caused this snafu. Yeah, man, I'll have your orders in the mail. We will send them right over. We'll wire them over if we have to. And uh, yeah, then he gets off the phone with him. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Goes back to the personnel uh, office at Camp Stoneman and says, hey, I just got off the phone with the Pentagon. And yeah, they're going to send my uh, they're going to send my orders right over. And uh, and the uh, the 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 uh, the personnel officer at Camp Stoneman says, well, son of a gun, I just got a call from them, too. They said, hey, sorry for the slip up, but they're going to send your orders right over. And it was like maybe a week or two later that he was on a boat to Korea to uh, to go to the front lines. And, uh, you know, he, he said in retrospect, he said, you know, at some point, the army was probably well aware of what I was doing and they were probably well aware of this ruse. But, Mike, you have to keep in mind. It was so rare for anybody who wanted to go to Korea that right. no questions were ever asked. Yeah. yeah, they're probably like, I don't know what's wrong with that dude, but go ahead and let him go. I have a <laughs> feeling that you don't ever want to get into like a prank war with him. Like, <laughs> oh no, uh -uh. you know, when we first got to this country and uh, we lived in um, Port St. Lucie, Florida, and mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a friend, young couple, married couple that moved in with us for a while. They were just getting their feet on the ground as a couple, yeah. you know, and. They moved in and <laughs> Carl is a Navy SEAL. Yeah. Just got out of being a SEAL. And I swear you'd come home and he would be hiding in a doorway in a very odd position. Like it was sneak Crazy. attack. Whenever we came home from whatever we're doing, like he'd be on the roof or he'd be hiding somewhere that you don't know and just go yeah. like, you know, surprise. It was like Peter Sellers. It yeah. was. It was totally like, and his wife just, I mean, his wife couldn't stand it. I don't know if they're still married. I don't know if they're was, still married. When we, but... when we were like, oh, yeah, what's going to happen now? So it, you had to be so aware, but he was so silent. No, mm -hmm. It was a Navajo, Black, a Blackfoot Navajo guy, too. Really? Okay. Like, don't, yeah. don't mess with him, man. Carl yeah. was, you do not was mess bad. with him. Bad and it was one, I was going through one situation where somebody's like, listen, Lisa, I have a knife. And I'm like, no, Carl. He's <laughs> like, you got to do this. And I'm like, no, no. You're going to have a, you know, you know, a disagreement with someone without a knife. But he um, was really, really one of those, you know, and I kind of feel mm -hmm. like Paul Gorman 
is one of those like if he wants to totally prank you on something, he's gonna he do it totally and do could. it well. Yeah. Would not surprise me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You Would know? not surprise me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting he didn't want to go to Germany, but then he ended up in Germany and started a winery after going to Germany and enjoying wine in Germany. He sure did. He sure did. Yeah. So yeah, he 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 actually did two tours in Germany. So the first one was not too long after Korea. Uh, he got there and he commanded an uh, commanded an armored infantry company, and uh, this was really the uh, first sustained look that he was able to get at post war Germany. And you know, he was commenting on you know just how much the uh, how much the West Germans had rebuilt since the end of the Second World War. And you know, he said you know they they weren't entirely back on their feet yet, but you could tell that life was slowly getting better for Germans of every stripe. And, you know, it was, uh, it was incumbent upon us, the Americans, to try to build um, long-lasting ties with the West Germans and to say, hey, you know, we, we really are committed to being your friends. And, you know, for no other reason, let's please get along and cooperate because we know the red menace that's just on the other side of the inner German border. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, while he was doing this, uh, the, I think that was also the first sustained look that he had, you know, to the German vineyard industry because when he would get up early in the morning to go for his PT runs, you know, he would often, he would often run through the uh, long and winding rows of the vineyards. And he was saying, man, this is really nice. It's pretty. It smells <laughs> mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. I think that this is something that, you know, that I would like to do as time goes on. And uh, when he got back to, when he got back to Germany um, uh, a little over 20 years later, when he was commanding a division there, that really just reinforced it, that there was something that he and Ruth, uh, his wife wanted to do after they eventually left the military and uh yeah the cardinal point winery uh that is that is a very well-known place i mean that is a uh, that is a landmark for all of the vineyards on the eastern seaboard today we're going we're going it's on our list we just drove through maryland um Virginia, we got lost in Maryland and Virginia, right outside DC at night, and That's ended up me. driving through Manassas the day it's that we were airing to. the show. Yeah. No, I mean totally twirled around. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know how we got out, but we did. And uh, but if I, know I knew there was a, all, you know. yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it was. Um, they were GPS was sending us because of car accident. I was just like, okay. Nice. And if I had just known about the winery at that time, I would have said, Nancy, let's just go, go to the there. winery. But when we're going to go there, when we go back yeah. east, we're going to do that. But we were trying to get out of the cold. As you know, in Minnesota, it's oh, that yeah. season, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We're in Florida. Mm-hmm. We, we, we left North nice here. It was like 20 <laughs> degrees with wind and snow going. And we're like, we're going to Florida. And like, I went as fast as I could because I love Northeast Pennsylvania. It's not a knock on anything, but yeah. man, Florida is yeah. really quite nice, but all right. Well, when this airs, we'll be in Asheville getting cold again. So there okay, we go. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> no, thanks. But thanks. I think that's really interesting about his career. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. to think about from West Point to Korea, you know, Vietnam, uh, then, you know, going in and then looking at his work, didn't he, you know, the, the Pentagon Papers, that's huge. That's right. Peace treaties is huge, the Paris pre- mm-hmm. Peace Treaties. But didn't he also do some kind of work in regards to going over to Mexico and looking what was going on with the cartels? Or is that his connection with the CIA? What was going on there? I want that okay. scandal. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's see. So if we fast forward a little bit to 1983, and at this point, Paul Gorman is actually getting very close to his mandatory retirement date. He's been in uniform collectively uh, for a little over 33 years at this point. Wow. And he is, and he is offered command of one of the geographical combatant commands known as the U.S. Southern Command, or as it's, as it's more popularly known, uh, Southcom for short. And Southcom's area of responsibility is everything in Latin America from the end of Mexico mm-hmm. all the way down to the tip of South America at Tierra del Fuego and also includes most of the Caribbean. So if we take a look at what was happening throughout all of Latin America in the 1980s at this point, we see that Paul Gorman really has his work cut out for him because, you know, I mean, you know, South America is a uh, is a uh, is is a hotbed of not only illegal drug cartels, but also there's there's a lot of uh, communist subversion going on. And this is a uh, this is a clandestine war that is going on. And it's really not making headlines to the degree that many of our other major conflicts have. So, you know, just to give you a uh, just give you a summary of uh, of everything that is facing the uh, Southcom area at this point, you know, throughout in in the early 1980s, you know, you have Guatemala that is still in the midst of the civil war. You have El Salvador that's being uh, it's being overrun by communist guerrillas. Uh, The Sandinistas have taken over Nicaragua. 
uh, Honduras and the, and, the, uh, and, and the Salvadorans have been going at it like cats and dogs for years. You have communism in Cuba. You, uh, you have a Marxist government that, that, has, uh, that, has, has, that has just stood up in Grenada. Uh, you know, you have um, you have in Panama, you know, Manuel Noriega. He has an ongoing love hate relationship with the U.S. You have drug cartels in Colombia. Mm. You have drug cartels that are they're actually operating throughout most of Central America at this point. You have Argentina that still hasn't recovered from the Falklands War. And then meanwhile, right across Damn the it. border. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting tired. It's a mess. No wonder yeah. they're all taking cocaine. There's a lot it's of work. A mess. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, you know, to add insult to injury. Right across the border in Chile, you have uh, you have uh, um, Augusto Pinochet who's ruling Chile with an iron fist. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, is there any part of Latin America at this point that is not going to be problematic for me? You know, as he's coming in to take command. So he says, okay, well, well, the first thing I have to do is okay. The first thing I have to tackle, the first thing that's going to be a big priority uh, for me from a military standpoint is trying to uh, trying to deter the communists from further expansion. In, in, inside of Latin America. So what I have to do is I have to deter the Cubans, I have to deter the Soviets, and I have to deter the Nicaraguans from spreading their ideology by force. So I said, okay, well, how do I do that and still stay below the threshold of sending in conventional forces? So what he does is he, um, what he, does is he increases the capability of the, uh, of the friendly Latin American countries. Uh, he, increases their, uh, he increases their military capabilities to say, okay, well, I'm gonna give you guys I'm, I'm, I'm essentially going to give you guys equipment that you've never had before. I'm going to give you the top quality military equipment from America that we're allowed to sell you. And I'm going to increase your ability to fight at night. See, the thing that separates the American military from a lot of other militaries out there is that we own the night and we have, uh, we have direct capabilities and a very big technological support apparatus to help us fight and engage the enemy at night. And it's going to help you guys out, one, because that's when the communist guerrillas fight the most they fight at night and the drug cartels you, you know all of the um, all of the traficantes they all tend to fight at night too so when we teach you these night fighting abilities and we, when we give you these night vision devices we're going to teach you how to take care of these threats internally on the dime and with the full logistical backing of the u.s government hmm. and that right there is what laid the foundations hmm. for uh for um uh, for a lot of the big disruptions within 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 the drug trafficking industry down there and it also what helped uh, also what helped uh, pave the way for for the Contras victory against the Sandinistas and also the victory in, in defeating the communist guerrillas in El Salvador. And uh, there were there were a lot of very good, interesting stories about what happened um, at, at that point. You know, one, mm. one uh, you, you know one particular story was um, was involving a uh, was was involving a country down there, Peru. That uh, that had that had imported a bunch of Soviet-built helicopters, but at the same time they also imported uh, they also imported some night vision and night optics from the U.S. So Paul Gorman was now straddled with the uh, unenviable mm-hmm. task of trying to teach the uh, Peruvian Air Force how to adapt its how to adapt its American-made uh, um, night vision devices to a to a uh, Soviet-built helicopter. And wow. try to and try to teach the Peruvians how to use it without being detected by the Soviet advisors who were operating in that country. So, so the uh, oh, so so yeah, and uh, I, I won't spoil it for for anybody who uh, who hasn't read the book yet. But uh, yeah, just uh, just suffice to say that uh, there were some uh, very clandestine operations going mm-hmm. on that were happening under the cover of night, getting uh, technical and support crew into the Peruvian air bases and uh, trying to uh, trying to teach them how to use their equipment without being detected by the Soviet advisors. Cause wow. that would have been a, uh, I think that would have been an international incident that, uh, at yeah. the proportions. If, you know, uh Oh, you know, here in Peru, hmm. uh, you know, an American technician crosses paths with a Soviet aviation advisor. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. And this is, it, it's it, so it, interesting it would not to have me. been pretty. No, how, been how pretty. we get internet, like, you know, here we get the Soviet, you know, you were talking about this with the F-14s, mm. F-15s, how they end up in mm. the enemy hands, like, right. you know, how things mm. travel. And then next thing you know, hey, we've got, you know, Russian gear. We're going to go after the Russians with it. Like, you know, or Soviet, you know, it's like that's some crazy stuff. I mean, are there like actual buyers and sellers of all the like, are they, you know, there's department stores have the buyers. 
<laughs> I mean, does, does the military have buyers and sellers of everything? Like, do they have a salesperson going around? Hey, I think I'll sell this to Iraq, and hopefully, we won't have a war in the next five years. Oh them. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> as a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, one of the things that we were educated on um, when, when when I was in the military was uh, was how to prepare for what they call FMS, foreign military sales. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it is a. Uh, it is no big secret to anyone who's serving that, uh, yeah, at one point or another, you very may well have to act as an advisor or you may have to act as a trainer for a, for a foreign military um, uh, a proponent who is, who is using American gear that has been sold to them uh, either by General Dynamics or Lockheed or any variety of oh. any of those defense contractors there. And uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's just it, it's, it's largely understood that uh, you know, if you're on friendly terms with this particular country today, they're going to get some of your military equipment. Granted, it won't be to the same quality and caliber as the as the domestic models you're using, but uh, those export variants, yeah, they mm-hmm. uh, wherever those are export wherever those export variants are sent, there's either an there's there's either an American technician who is a representative of the company that sold it, and there is an American military advisor that's giving the uh, that. Wow. That, that that is giving the technical know-how of how to uh, mm-hmm. you know how to employ that system in combat. Wow! But, and then there's also the mafia seems to always be poking their nose in somewhere. Yeah, I mean, they oh they really, oh oh after yeah. this recording, we have a question for you on that because sure. <laughs> it's interesting. But mm-hmm. I do we, you know what's interesting? You know, talking about Thanksgiving, a uh, Thanksgiving dinner last night. Uh, we were talking with some friends and we were talking, we were talking about your book actually. And then yeah. talking about the whole, what mm-hmm. was going on in Mexico mm-hmm. and everything. And we were talking about Russia and, and, you know, the Soviet, like with the Chinese and the Soviets, like mm-hmm. as Americans, we, if that's the two things be wary. And, right. um, mm-hmm. and I know saying, well, that's interesting because, you know, when we lived in Mexico, there was a whole bunch of Russians and, and, and I was wondering, mm-hmm. is there a connection where, I mean, maybe they just moved there and wanted to set up life and grow vineyards because they do. There are several great wineries owned by Russians. They're great. But Uh I'm wondering about that history. When you think about communism and everything, what was going on? Like, did the Russians go over there at one point, like just through Central and South America? Oh, yeah. As part, was that part of a thing in history of we're going to go in this way? And kind yeah. of settle or spread, like take over. What was going on? Like, how well, did that happen? <laughs> well, they had quite a few Soviet advisors who who were setting up shop all throughout Latin America. You know, I mean, you had at huh. any given point, um, you, at any given point, you had quite a few in Cuba. You know, you you also had Soviet advisors in Grenada. Uh, pretty much anywhere where there was a pro-Marxist government or there was a uh, or there was mm-hmm. a pro-Marxist uh, movement afoot, uh, you would have you would have Soviet advisors there. Mm-hmm. And also, even if the uh, even if the country was uh, was at, at, at least nominally capitalist, if they were using Soviet built equipment, yeah, you had one or two Russian advisors over there at any given point who were you know overseeing the overseeing the delivery, overseeing the training and the implementation mm-hmm. of equipment, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. It's like even even when we lived in different parts of Africa, the Russians were always there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And they do make good wine. I, yeah, apparently vodka, no, but you wine, know, and they, they and they I mean it starts with having a um embassy or consulate, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and then expands from there. Wow. Yeah. But Paul Gorman, man, what a life. This is epic. I mean, this is yeah. an epic, epic story. I can't lot. wait to get reading it because you know, Nancy did kind of like everything here, here. He did this and then he did that. And then I he think, did this. Well, and then I he think did it that. should be, I think it should be a textbook in schools. I'm really a so. proponent of getting rid of the dried, boring textbooks that history classes make you try to read and understand um, because it's not presented in a way that mean that's meaningful. So mm-hmm. I would like to see your your books and some of the other authors. Well, she was talking about authors. excellence. She said, like, uh, with, with how more the leaders, uh, the excellence in leadership, that this yeah. also ties in danger for mm-hmm. Paul Gorman. I mean, do you think they met? I was uh, think there's somebody would like they might have because well, they have know. a certain <laughs> they have a certain set of principles that they yeah. stand by, 
and that that guides them to make decisions that fall in line with their principles. They don't very often wave over and go, well, this is the easier thing to do. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. They're like, no, we're going to do it this way because of this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. And they stick to it regardless of what happens to them um, in their careers. They have that ability to like, I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do, as opposed to if I do this, it's going to hurt my career. They don't, they're like, no, this is the right thing to do. They have higher ideals and they see in the future, they have a big picture. Right. That is more than them. It's more mm-hmm. than their career. It's a picture for how they see the world. It's a picture of who's, you know, that we want, we want democracy to win. Right. You know, they have that as opposed to just their personal advancement, Correct. which is a big thing when you're looking at leadership. Mm-hmm. Now, so I say they run for. <laughs> no, but oh, did, I think did, he... did they meet? Did, did, did you think they ever met? I'm sure they probably met at one point. You know, I mm-hmm. never asked Gorman if he met Hal Moore or not, yeah. but uh, you know, given just uh, how close they were to the front lines of rebuilding the army mm. in the wake of the Vietnam War. I'm sure they must have crossed paths at least once or yeah. twice. At least they talk probably to know yeah. or would know who each other is. Oh, yeah. He needs a museum too. Mm-hmm. He needs a museum. Paul Gorman. Maybe they have a section at the winery dedicated to him. I would hope so. Yeah. Well, I'll let you know. <laughs> we're going to go. <laughs> I don't know when okay. we're going to go, but we're going to go because, you know, we'll end up out there again. But you know, yeah. very, very fascinating. Well, we look forward to the next one. Tell everybody what the next book is. Cause I mean, it's just like, okay. non- how are you doing all of this? Man. Oh my gosh. That's the only <laughs> thing I'm good at. It's your, oh, well, you're sure definitely good at it, but I, I, I know that's not true, but I mean, this is amazing. And the stories are really good. And uh, you know, just, you're just, you just keep going, you know, well, and, and also very readable. Cause it's not an easy. That's why I say you're you make it so accessible read. for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's readable and your books are readable and memorable. They're not like, like I say that the history texts that you had to read Mm -hmm. as a kid that was just like, oh, geez, let me out of class. Can I now be truant or something? Yeah, because I look at (laughs) at Skybreak. Skybreak is still, I I mean, that was just Mm. epic. You know, and I like that that book. And how's that going? Because I know that's got to be well received. I knew it would be. This is cool. Yeah. Awesome. So next. It's gotten great reviews so far. Yeah. I've got it. I mean, it's yeah. like every other day, something good's going. I'm like, man, you are working hard and, and it's paying off. I see a lot of action going out there on Twitter and everything. And it's so cool to see such a good following mm-hmm. on your YouTube. You do a lot on YouTube. I do. I man. Do. Yeah, man. Yeah. Cool. You're working it. He's working it. But yeah, next is combat stories. Actually, it's called the Combat Diaries. The Combat and, Diaries. There you yep, go. Yeah. Yep. And and that is a collection of short stories from a a variety of veterans from World War II. And uh, it it uh, and what, what what I tried to accomplish with the Combat Diaries is really just take a, a cross section of the typical veterans uh, who served in that conflict. And you, you know, within these two dozen stories that I, I have recorded uh, for this book, uh, they're veterans sharing their experiences fighting on the front lines. And uh, it runs a pretty wide spectrum. You know, uh, there's one story who, who, uh, who was a pilot at Midway. You know, then I have another story of a man who was, who was the first man on Omaha Beach. I have a, uh, have a story of a uh, man who's rather small in stature, but he, he's uh, small but mighty. He was a ball mm-hmm. turret gunner on a B-17. And uh, wow. you had to have a, a small body in order to fit inside that turret. So even wow. though he was only about five foot three, five foot four, uh, just incredible stories that he has to tell. You know, he he wow. tells stories about engaging pilot, engaging these German pilots, you know, from the ball turret. And he said that sometimes they were so close it felt like I was firing at point blank, and they were so close that I could actually see the color of their hair and the color of their eyes. Oh, wow. yeah, it was it was it was it was pretty oh, pretty epic. Yeah, and then there was another gentleman who was a uh, who who was a uh, crewman on a B twenty four. He got shot down over Germany and spent the remainder of the war inside of three different German POW camps. And, oh, wow. And I mean, my God, just the fact that he lived to tell that story uh, 
is yeah. just beyond incredible. And um, then after that, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much taking the same construct and I am, I, I, I am applying it to the Vietnam War. Mm. And, and so for that follow-on project after the Combat Diaries is a book called Blood Alley. And uh, that is a story that pretty much follows the uh, same construct, except they're uh, they're telling the frontline stories of men who uh, who fought on the front lines in Vietnam. Oh, wow. And uh, two of the two of the prominent characters that I can share with you for that book, one is a gentleman named Dan Crowley, and uh, he was a combat engineer who coincidentally was also at the Battle of Bong Trang, and uh, oh, his wow. battalion and his battalion mm-hmm. was, his, his engineer battalion was attached to Paul Gorman's unit. Okay, so small oh, world. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. And then there is another gentleman who was featured in that book. His name is Tom McCullough. And uh, Tom's claim to fame, uh, really, if, um, and I don't know if this is the best way to describe it. It's just the best analogy that I can think of right offhand. He's pretty much the anti-Ron Kovic. And in mm. that he was injured in a similar way that Ron Kovic was. Um, but instead of becoming anti-war and writing memoirs like Born on the Fourth of July, he was pro-war throughout his entire life, and he attended pro-war rallies as a wounded veteran. And wow. uh, and That's then not only that, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and then not only that, he went on to become the president of the Boys and Girls Club after the war. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Who knew? Wow, mm-hmm. that's different. Very interesting, man. This is yeah. always wow. something, you know, everybody's stories. I love that you're sharing the stories of, the, of those who fought. And uh, everyone, again, MikeGuardia.com is a website. You can get his book, Danger Forward, on Amazon uh, and all Goodreads, all those places. Go check it out. But um, also just go to MikeGuardia.com. Follow him on sa- uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Those are the three main places, right? Did I? Yeah. Yeah, you don't do Instagram. Let me get you on Instagram. Come on. <laughs> I think I'll do it one of these days. Come, yeah. come on to the other side. No, okay. no, no but <laughs> anyway, no, always good. So looking forward to our next conversation with you. Uh, that will always. be for January. So we'll be talking mm-hmm. about Pearl Harbor and Afghanistan cool. and uh, look forward to that. So thank you so much, Military Mike. Everyone keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com and watch out for Mike's segments every first Monday here on Big Blend Radio. Cool. Thank you so much, Lisa Nancy. It is always a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you.